he wrote to them several things, but the main focus of these letters is uh, two things. The return of Jesus, his imminent return, the reality of it, what it means for us as believers, because it should mean something. It shouldn't just be a, a doctrine that we know. It should be something that is lived out. How do we live out the return of Jesus? And then number two, um, the ministry of the local church in light of that fact. So uh, the local church has been built up and it's been strengthened. It's been uh, caused to be in a location for a reason. Uh, we are to be an impact on our community. And, and that means that uh, you know whatever God has done in and through our lives that's made a difference, we are then able to, by his grace, go and do the same thing. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, as I have loved you, go and do likewise. And he said that after he girded himself, and as he took the form of a slave, and he washed his disciples' feet, he said, now I want you guys to go and do that. Go and be servants. And so Paul, under this same example, went out as a servant, called as an apostle, and he planted churches all over the known world at that time. Now, for many of us, that's something where we look, we look at that and we go, well, that's great, but here I am, and I'm in my situation. I've got this financial supply, and I've got these things that I know, and these things that I don't, and these things that are, I'm capable of, and these things that I'm completely incapable of. What does God want me to do? And I would encourage you, ask him. Because the reality is, is when I got saved, I never knew what God wanted me to do. I just knew that he loved me and he cared deeply about me and I wanted to do whatever he wanted me to do because I knew that in hope, in my salvation, I was better off than I ever had been in my whole life. So Paul's being obedient. He's going out and planting churches. He's not called to stay there like I've been called. He's called to go and plant others and then to raise up leaders and then to go and plant another one and to raise up leaders. And, and he's an apostle. He's a sent one. And so as we open up the book of Thessalonians, we notice that um, Paul is writing to this very specific place in a specific region. But before we go there, because it's been so many months, I want to go to Acts chapter 17. Keep your thumb or your finger or bookmark in 2 Thessalonians and go back to Acts chapter 17. Because we see the genesis of the church. We see the beginning of the church there in Thessalonica. So in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, it says, When they, those had been traveling with Paul, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul oftentimes went to synagogues in a town. If he knew someone that knew Yahweh, he was a Jew himself. He could start with the Old Testament scriptures that he was well-versed in and reveal Jesus, that all these Old Testament scriptures were about Jesus. And he would start from a place of reference that he was able to then kind of embellish, and not embellish, that's the wrong word, exhort them and teach them about how the Old Testament was all precursors to the Messiah. And so in Acts chapter 17, it says, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, the Jews, and for three Sabbaths, three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining with words and demonstrating with deeds that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, we would know that because we call him Jesus Christ. 
But in Paul's day, he was just another guy, and they would say things like, well, he's a good teacher, you know. But Christ isn't his last name, it's his title. It would be like calling the president just, you know, Donnie or something like that without saying President Trump or, you know, and in a different country, calling them king if they're kings, if they're dignitaries of some sort. It's not giving preference, it's just calling them by their title. I don't call my boss, hey, you. I call him boss sometimes just because out of respect, you know, uh, for his title, not necessarily for his character. You know, sometimes you have a boss that you don't necessarily respect. That doesn't mean that you can't honor them in that position and show that at least you're subservient because you're subservient to God and you know that God's placed them in authority over you. But I'm getting off on a tangent. He says, so um, then as his custom was, he went in, he explained And he says, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the anointed one that God said he would send all the way from the earliest part of the the Old Testament where the fall happened. Right afterwards, it says that the seed of the woman will, will be your savior, essentially. He will be the second Adam. He'll be the one that will bruise the heel of the serpent. And so this this man's going to come along. He's going to be the Messiah. And the Jews were looking for Messiah. They were looking for this deliverer that God had promised all the way through all of the prof- prophetic texts. We just looked in Daniel and we saw the Messiah in Daniel chapter 7. You know, this big prophecy and we see the anointed one, this, this bright shining man. I believe it's chapter 7. Check me on that. But here we are in, in Acts chapter 17 and he's proclaiming this Christ this Messiah they're looking for, he came. So you should know about it. You don't have to look anymore. This is him. He lived, he died, he rose again, he sits at the right hand of the Father on high. And so when some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So some of them were persuaded by Paul's testimony and a few of the Gentiles were persuaded, and they were joined with, uh, and they joined up with Paul and Silas. They became disciples. But verse five, the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, they set all the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. Apparently, Jason's house is where they met. Like, hey, where do you guys go to church? Jason's house. And, and that's where they met, in house churches early on. So <clears throat> they sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason, the leader, or at least the owner of the house, and the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here to do so also. Jason has harbored them, And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So you could see that they they came to faith, they began to gather locally, and then as a result of that, everything got better, right? No. As a result of their faith in Christ, all of a sudden they're at odds with their culture. All of a sudden what they believe contradicts what they're government's telling them they can do so how do they act how do they respond 
Well, it says here that they were persecuted. This is persecution in its most basic elements. They're told, basically, they got to stop. They're dragged out of their houses. They're being accused. Who else do we know in Scripture that was accused of things they hadn't done? Jesus. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. And so it says here that Jason is being accused of harboring them as if they're criminals. And they're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. They're following God instead of our leader. What could happen, you know? And so what you got to know is at this time, Caesar had told everyone in his whole empire that you got to worship me. He was claiming to be God. Egyptians were no different. Remember Pharaoh? He, he was the son of, he was supposedly the son of Ra, the sun god. And he, he caused the people that were in his kingdom, he said, you will worship me. Among your other gods, you will worship me. Caesar did the same. They had to pay homage to him. It wasn't just taxes. They got to worship. And so we see this, and they're upset because they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. But notice what it said about this church, the Thessalonian church. Paul was there for three weeks. And the impact that he made on them by his testimony, by what he taught them, they believed it and they did it to the point that what was said of Paul and all of his disciples that went around planting churches, it says, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They had been, by their being obedient to the Lord, they had turned upside down cultures everywhere they went. It was as if they were a huge ship in a small pond, and they were going at the speed that God had them, and they were causing ripples that were affecting everyone around them. You ever go on a small pond with a big, a big boat, or if you've ever been on a lake where somebody comes through with a big speedboat, starts rocking everybody, docks and pontoon boats? My parents live on a lake, and I, I would water ski, and it's only 60 acres. So you go out there, and you're water skiing, and you're going by, and of course, you can't really get that far away from the dock. So anybody that lives on the main body of water, all day long, their boat's just going, kuh, 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 and beating up against the, you know, the, the dock. And that's what was going on. You know, some of those people that live on the lake, they get mad because they're like, I, I live on this spot, this is where my boat is, and it gets beat to tar every weekend. Well, that's what these people in Thessalonica, the people around these Thessalonican believers, they're going, hey, I'm glad that you got freedom to do what you want to do, but now it's impeding on me. Your faith is affecting my life, and I don't like what it's doing. And that's a real thing. You know, we live in an area where people don't even want to live in town because you don't like what your neighbors are doing to you. You know, how many people love their neighbors when the neighbor starts, you know, blowing leaves across the fence line or burning, you know, burning? Yeah, I mean, the, the smoke blows across your yard your kids can't go outside and play. And, and these are their neighbors. But you got to love those people that don't believe the way that you do. Otherwise, they never get to see the God you know. You know? So these Thessalonians are clashing with their culture because they're a part of a new kingdom. They have faith in God. And it's affecting their lives so much that their neighbors notice. Let me tell you, your neighbors should notice your faith. They should. 
If you have to tell them you're a Christian and they're surprised, check yourself. Because they shouldn't be surprised. They should be aware of what you believe and why you believe it if you get the opportunity. So <clears throat> that's the beginnings of their church. And we'll, we'll stop there. But in, so in Second Th- Thessalonians, he's writing a second letter. But in the first letter, he, in chapter 1, recounted their beginnings as a church. And that's what we just did. That's how it started. They got saved, their lives were changed, and the culture hated it. So the question is, at that point, do you bow down to culture and say, well, I don't want to be too radical because I still want to be able to be a part of my culture, or do you say, can I honor God and love Him first and foremost, have an impact on my society, and try to work out the kinks with the other stuff? There are some things that are going to make people around you mad that you can't let go of. And there are some things that are going to make people around you mad because you believe in Jesus that you got to let go of. we got to be good neighbors. But there are some things that we need to live out and are truths that we hold with a close fist. And there are other things that are kind of open-handed. And so we got to learn to become good neighbors. But in 1 Thessalonians, Paul recounted their beginnings as a church, that it all started with individuals getting saved. That's what every church is built upon individual believers who make up the whole that when we assemble together is the body of Christ made up of many people built into one man and that goes across church lines as long as the church believes in Jesus they're studying the word of God they believe in God and they they follow him there are going to be some things that we don't agree on but the body of Christ isn't just the local assembly here we got First Baptist down the road. I'm just listing ones that I have fellowship. We get Cowboy Church. We got some of these places that, that are in the valley. They're not, if they're not against us, they're for us. Does that make sense? But then he remembers in chapter 2 what made them strong. What makes us strong as believers, and this is going to sound weird, what makes us strong first and foremost is that we believe in Jesus. What makes us strong second most is that he gives us the opportunity to serve him in the ways he calls us to. For many of us, most of our week looks like serving Jesus at our jobs. You can serve Jesus in your job. That's what being on mission looks like. You do what God gives you to do for his glory. But then as a part of that, he gives us opportunities to witness to others. And then he remembers in chapter three, what established them, what made them strong as a body. And really that stability Any church can only be stable when all of its members are walking in daily fellowship with him. And uh, we need to be aware of that. Each individual stone has to be tied to the cornerstone on the foundation of a building. And likewise, we all as living stones must be tied into the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, who is Jesus. And if we're not, then there's going to be faults and cracks in the foundation, and then the church won't stand. So we all have individual responsibility. But then he strongly encourages them and teaches them how they should conduct themselves as the church in chapter 4 and 5. Uh, he, some of the things he lists are uh, conducting ourselves in holiness, in harmony with one another, in honesty, in hope. You know, some of the things that happen in our lives, circumstances that shake us up, they shake us up because our hope is in something that can fail us. And when that happens, we're strengthened because we find out where we have a problem 
We have the choice to no longer hope in that thing or that circumstance and begin to shift that hope or that, you know, it's kind of like assets. We shift, shift some of our, our hope asset into the one who cannot let us down, who will never fail us. And then he talks about in helpfulness. So they'd grown, they, they had to conduct themselves in and outside of the church in holiness, harmony, honesty, hope, and helpfulness. And as they did that, they were strengthened together because all of those things are impossible to do without the empowering of God. So two major themes in these letters are the return of Jesus and the ministry of the local church. So his return, Jesus' return, should be more than a thing or a doctrine that we believe. It should be a truth that we live out. So what's that mean? Well, let me tell you, the Thessalonian church was living this truth out. They believed wholeheartedly that Jesus was going to come back any day. So much that some of them quit their jobs and they just started hanging out with each other all the time. That's all they ever did. Now, I would love to be able to do that. To quit my job, we all just get here every day. We hang out. You know, we, we go do stuff together. We live as if the kingdom is now. It's already fulfilled. It would be great. We would all love it. There'd be things that we wouldn't like about it, like eventually we'd be like, okay, I'm going home, because most of us are introverts, even though we don't even realize it. You know, like we used to be, this is just kind of a harping rant, but um, <laughs> I'm going to go with it. You, do you ever notice that you can't knock on somebody's door and just hang out anymore? Like you have to call ahead, and then when you're on the way, you got to text, and then after you leave, you got to text them and say, hey, how fun that was. You know, we kind of feel, and it's not a bad thing. I'm not going to say it's a bad thing, but we feel like we have to do that. But in the meantime, we, we make it something it was never meant to be. Like hanging out with people should be something that we, it's what we were made for. But most of us, myself included, fall into the trap of, I'm going home, I ain't talking to nobody tomorrow. And I'm going to do me time. And I love me time, just ask my wife. But we weren't made for that. And then we get depressed and we get discouraged, especially this time of year when there's no daylight. And we're like, man, why am I depressed? Why am I discouraged? Because we were made to interact with one another. We are energized in some ways, and in some ways de-energized or get the life sucked out of us by, you know, expectations for what we have for one another. But we were made for fellowship. That's what I want to say. You can't anymore just knock on somebody's door. And I wouldn't encourage that unless you got those people. I've got certain friends where my wife, when, when we got married... I'd be like, hey, let's go see them. And she's like, don't we need to call? I'm like, no, I'm going to knock on the door. We're going in. And, uh, th but they had adopted me when I was single. I was single for so long. I had people that I could do that with. I don't have that anymore because they got seven kids. You know, they're like, you, you, some people aren't comfortable when you come over and the tornado happened. You know? Um, anyway, I forgot where I was going with that. We could live as if the kingdom was now. But the problem is, then we can't provide for our families. In First Thessalonians, he said, if anyone doesn't work, <laughs> then you don't eat. You know, uh, we're not going to give a bunch of benevolence out to people that aren't j just aren't doing what they need to do to provide for their families. We're all responsible for, for ourselves and for each other. Um, but in the same token, uh, I don't think we lean that way. I don't think many of us lean to the point where we're like, oh, you know, I, w I just want to spend time with the people of God all the time. I think most of us lean to the other side of the spectrum. So well, maybe we can't relate with that. But 
he writes to them to go, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Make sure that you guys are doing your jobs, providing for your families, and being responsible citizens. Otherwise, you're actually disgraced to, to the Lord. You're not showing that God takes care of his people. But I want you to notice something as we start chapter 1, finally there. He's going to encourage them. He's writing them to correct some things that they were living out. See, they believed that Jesus was returning any day. And so because of that, they changed their lives for it. But in some ways, they went a little too far with it. You ever tell your kids, like, never do this, and then they never do it even when it's really kind of a, like, never listen to people that, that aren't me and your dad. And then they go to school, and the teacher tries to tell them, I can't listen to anybody but mom and dad. Wait a minute. You know, we got to find a balance in here. And, and with the Thessalonians, that's the same thing. You know, live as if Jesus could come back tomorrow, but also take care of your daily stuff. And so that's what he's going to correct them with. But he starts in chapter 1 by encouraging them. Chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of your translations might say Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But those are kind of a, a dynamic a trio, if you will. They were serving together. They ministered to these churches. And Paul was discipling these two young men. It says, To the church of Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says grace and peace because he's writing to a church that's more than likely made up of more than just Gentiles and more than just Jews. These two cultures that were clashing with one another in Christ became one, the body of Christ. And so he says grace, which is a Greek word that means that's charis, which would be a common Greek greeting in that day. You know, it was their yo, what's up? And then you would have on the other side, uh, shalom, or peace. If, you're, if you go to Jerusalem, someone says hi to you, they're going to say, shalom, peace to you. And they're saying, peace from my God. And so in the same way, Paul writes to them, to a culture that's diverse, if you will, and he says, grace and peace, and they would all be able to relate to that greeting. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Notice what he says, we give thanks for you for these reasons, and he's going to list some reasons in verse 1 through 4. Because your faith is growing exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. You're growing abundantly, it's overflowing from you towards each other. And if there's anything I could encourage you in, is get to know the people you go to church with and, and just encourage them. Build them up. It may not be in some, you know, I'm not saying you've got to send them flowers every day, but, but touch base with each other during the week. He's encouraging them because their faith is growing and because their love for one another is growing. And then he says, He says, uh, the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the other churches of God for your patience and your faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So he says, I'm encouraged and we boast about you, not because you're doing things nice for each other and because your faith is growing, not just because of those things, but because it's happening in circumstances that make no sense. You're growing in your faith, and you're growing in your love for one another 
while you're being persecuted. That's commendable. If you're suffering, just think about yourselves right now. If you are suffering, do you usually grow in, in, in loving others? Or do you usually become more selfish? I become more selfish. If I'm tired and worn out and I get home, I don't think about my, the fact that my wife's been taking care of the kids all day. I sit down in my chair, I want to watch Andy Griffith, and I want to drink a hot cup of coffee, and I want to just take care of me. It's natural. That's the flesh. We want to serve ourselves. But <clears throat> when we go through persecution or tribulation, in other words, if life presses in on us and causes us to be pressured and we start serving others and considering others before ourselves, that's not a sign that we're just becoming better humans. That's actually a sign of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. In Galatians, it says that the fruit of the flesh is essentially striving and bickering and malice and grumbling and complaining, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If you go through persecution, if your life is pressing in on you, whether it's circumstances you've created or whether it's ones you never asked for and squeezes out of you selfishness, I would say no commendation, right? But when you go through that stuff and love comes out for other people and you grow in your love for the Lord, that's a sign of the Holy Spirit. So he commends them and they actually, look, he says, we boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith. They're growing in patience. Tribulations is, are producing patience. They're, they're, they're getting squeezed, and out of them it's not coming what usually comes out of me, which is anger and short temper, but actually patience and more faith. And so he's encouraging them because that's not normal. He's encouraging them that because that's a sign that they're actually walking in faith. He says it's manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So not only are they growing, but also um, because of their growing and because things are going well and they're growing in faith and in love for one another, Paul's boasting about them to others. Why is he telling all these other churches about it? Because when you see signs of, the, of God working in his church or in individuals' lives and you tell the story to each other, it actually builds faith in other people. It encourages them that God is able to overcome things that you can't overcome on your own. And so he says, um, it's manifest or revealed evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In a flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. He writes to them to praise them for the evidence of God working in them. He writes to them to remind them of the promises of God. 
these people have experienced persecution. Many believe that there was actually a letter written to this church, the Thessalonians, that said it was from Paul, but it was actually from someone else trying to discourage them. Basically teaching that Jesus had already come back and they missed out on it. Jesus came back and you missed it. You know, and I've heard many people kind of whisper that once in a while, like, you know, okay, Jesus is coming back, but I've heard people say that he already came back and we missed out. Now what for us? And that's discouraging, right? Well, if he already came back, that means I wasn't in the saved and, I, and this and that. But what Paul writes to them is, yes, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I wrote um, that Christ returns in the air. And what we believe and what we teach as a church, especially after teaching Daniel, is that when Jesus comes back for his saints, that we will be called up, caught up in the air. That's where you get the word rapture, to be snatched up. We'll be taken to be with him in heaven. But after the tribulation period, we will actually, he will come back to earth. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 teaches that Christ returns to earth with his saints to rule and reign for a millennium. And so, yes, you, you think that you've missed out on the rapture, but you didn't. And second of all, God's promised that if, when you're raptured and you are in Christ, he will actually bring you back. So there's, and that, that event of him calling us up in the air, Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven. But my Father in heaven has appointed a time for it. And he never really gives us much to go off of. Like, when's it going to happen? He told us some signs of this, the times that would be going on. But then in 2 Thessalonians, we look at the fact that Christ is going to return to the earth to rule and reign. And if you read the book of Daniel, he actually gives lots of indicators of what it's going to look like before he returns with us to rule and reign and set up his earthly kingdom. So there are all things that we need to know as believers. And more than anything, what I want you to come away with is when God promises something, he will do it. When God promises he will do something, he doesn't stop working until it happens. And he's got an appointed time for those promises to be fulfilled. Not one jot, not one tittle will go without being fulfilled. Uh, it's, it's the Hebrew way for like what we say is crossing your T's and dotting your I's. There will not be one cross T or one dotted I in Scripture that God will not fulfill because when he promises, he means it. And he is able to keep his promises. So he reminds them of a promise of God. Number one, the promise of reward. We've been counted worthy to suffer for the kingdom. We've been counted worthy. Why are we counted worthy for that? How many of you guys got Bible promise books and you got that one underlined? You know, Jesus said, I will suffer persecution if I desire to live godly. It's what Paul wrote to Timothy. All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution, just like our Savior. You know, um, I've been thinking, and I mentioned this to Steve yesterday while we were working downstairs, but I was thinking about a circumstance that was going on. Somebody was being picked on, and I've been praying through it and asking God for insight. Like, how should we interact when we have enemies? Jesus taught, and he lived out, to love your enemies, right? But you can't do that unless you have enemies. 
So we look at enemies and we go, wow, that's not a blessing, that's a curse. But actually, uh, just last weekend, we were learning that problems are actually God's giving us opportunities. The world sees problems, God sees opportunities. The world sees enemies, we see opportunities. We get, you can't fulfill the command that God gave us to love enemies unless he allows enemies to creep into your life. So loving your enemies is part of being faithful. And then what he promises is that anyone who rejects the gospel and disobeys God, God will repay them. He will give recompense. He will repay those who are against his people. And I know that because Paul's own life is an example of this. Paul was on the road to Damascus to kill Christians. He actually was there holding the coats of the guys that stoned the first martyr of the New Testament. Stephen was stoned by Jewish zealots that said Jesus was not the Messiah. You guys are blaspheming. The Old Testament says we can kill you for blaspheming. And so Paul was holding their coats, standing there as a witness, condoning the act, and they stoned Stephen to death, and Paul was there. So Paul, enraged by this going on, was persecuting. He was pressing hard. It's like a football team that's two points off of winning at the end of a game, or basketball. We just watched basketball the other night. If you only got a couple of points and it's the last period and there's just a minute or two left, there's a full court press. Everybody goes in, all in, because nobody wants to push hard, but nobody wants to spend the night after going, we could have won that game. And so in the same way, Paul was full court press going, we're going to shut down these Jesus freaks. We're going to kill them. We're going to stop them because they're blaspheming. He thought he was doing right. And so he starts charging up the road on the way to Damascus. He's going to find every Christian he can. He's going to root them out, and he's going to make sure that they are stopped from doing what they're doing because they're misleading people. And on the road, as Paul's getting ready to do that, what does Jesus do? He shows up, he blinds him, he knocks him down, and he talks to him. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the people? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? He says, he takes it personally. He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you messing with me? And what does Saul say? He says, who are you, Lord? He had never met the God that he thought he was following. God takes it personally. And he warns Saul. And Saul says, what do you want me to do? He says, who are you? And then he says, once he hears it, he says, what do you want me to do? I believe. Now what? And then he gave him instructions. He sent him to a place. He opened up his eyes. And as much and as hard as Saul went against God, I want to point out to you that he became even more zealous to do God's purposes. As believers, it is our job. It is our blessing. It is our honor is our joy, hopefully. As much as we win against God, we have to be willing to surrender just as much and to go just as zealously to do the purposes of God. Because if we don't, we will default back to where we came from. And I know that for sure. I know that. I've experienced that. If I'm not going just as hard for God as I did for the flesh, the flesh will creep up 
and take over again. So, he says, we will be rewarded for suffering for the kingdom. He says, God will repay your enemies. Don't worry about it. And there is a promise of rest. Verse 7, the first part says, to give you who are troubled rest. I would even, if you want to, right off on the side of your Bibles, uh, the word rest actually means relief there. To you who are troubled, relief with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. We'll look up, we'll see him, we'll be joined together with him in the crowd in the clouds, and we'll go, ah, finally, everything he promised. And then he says there in verse 10, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, so he goes from encouraging them and praising them for the things that, that they're growing in. I would submit to you that they were faith and love. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, right? So they had been growing in faith, they'd been growing in love, but they had forgotten their hope, so he reminded them of their hope. It's like a three-legged stool, you need all three. And then in verse 11 and 12, he encourages them in prayer. He says, therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling. So going back to the first book he wrote, he says that you should walk worthy, worthy of the higher calling. He says, therefore, we also pray always that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of his plans for you, the things that he has called you and set you apart for, that they would all be fulfilled and lived out. I want to point out to you that the things he praised them for, if you look back in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, there were things that he listed there in his letter that he was praying for them. He prayed for him th them those things, and then in the second letter, he gave thanks to God for answering those prayers and making them happen. And so I guess if there's anything I could encourage you in, and hopefully it's encouragement, is that life is going to be full of pressure. Every one of us has a set amount of pressure, but God has his hand on the valve. He will not allow more pressure than you can take while you're trusting in him. He may allow more pressure than you can take when you're trusting in you. Actually, I would submit to you, he will. But it's only to drive you back to him as your hope. But I would also submit to you that in those pressures, if you will trust in the Lord, if you will ask him, Lord, fill me with your spirit because I'm going to get squeezed this week and I would much rather you be squeezed out of me than me. You know, if you squeeze an orange, if you put pressure on all sides of an orange, what comes out of it? orange juice. If you are filled with Christ and life squeezes you, what's going to come out of you? Christ. What's coming out of you when you get squeezed? I will submit to you, I will confess before you that many times it's not Christ. That should be the red flag moment to go, okay, I failed there. A fail is a first attempt in learning. First attempt in learning fail, get back up and say, okay, Lord, I, I messed that one up. Will you change me so that next time I don't? I want to be a light for you. 
but we can't be a light for him unless we're filled with him. And we can't love like him. We can't love our enemies. We can't do anything for his glory unless we are um, being changed. And so, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. We thank you for this word from Paul. Thank you for using this Thessalonian church. They were taught by Paul. They were prayed for by Paul. But they were filled with you. And if there's anything that I desire for our church, it would be that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit, that we would give you our hearts, our minds, our wills. And Father, as we do that, would we gain our lives? Jesus said, if any man would gain his life, he must first give it up. So Father, help us to give up expectations that are not yours. Help us to give up thoughts and habits and lifestyles that are not yours. Help us to take on what your desire is for us to grow us in faith, to grow us in love for one another, to grow us to the point where we could love those who don't love us. Anybody can love people that love them, but you've called us to love our enemies. And more than that, you've called us to love the people that don't believe the same way that we do. So Father, would you give us opportunities this week? Of course, I realize as I just taught that we're praying for opportunities. We're praying for problems. We don't want problems for problems' sake. We want problems so that we can have opportunities to share you. Father, would you give us the ability, the desire, and the love so that we can share you with those that surround us? We are surrounded by people who are hopeless. We are surrounded by people that are against us. And sometimes we're surrounded by people that we love, but we don't know what to do. So would you give us the ability and the desire, but also the direction on how to love the people around us? And at the same time, would you give us the strength to withstand under the pressures that this life brings? Lord, we all have pressures in our lives that are bigger than us. Would you please sustain us? Help us not to lay aside our faith so that we can take care of things, but Lord, would you instead grow our faith so that we could trust you in those pressures and in those problems? And would you be glorified in all that we say and do this week? In Jesus' name, amen.